Hello, thanks for listening to Theory Lab. I'm Joe Cotter of the American Cancer Society here with my colleague, Dr. Susanna Greer. Hi, Susanna. Hey, Joe. So I don't know about you, I always thought of, of cancer as a genetic disease. You hear about you know mutations to your DNA from smoking or sunlight or whatever uh, causing cancer, but the person that you spoke with uh, talked about epigenetics. We're talking about Bradley Bernstein, the good doctor Bradley Bernstein. He's an MD and a PhD, so as an MD, he's a pathologist at Massachusetts General Hospital. He's also the, I'm going to have to read for a while, he's got a lot of titles because he's pretty accomplished. He's the, he's an American Cancer Society research professor. He's the Bernard and Mildred Caden Endowed Research Institute Chair at Massachusetts General Hospital. He's also a professor of pathology at Harvard Medical School and an institute member at the Broad Institute. So, Susanna, his research focuses on epigenetics. What do you think? <laughs> Thanks, Joe. Yeah, Brad is, uh, he's pretty amazing. Incredibly accomplished scientist and has led this really productive and influential, I would say, area of research into helping us to understand epigenetics as a field in general and then how it relates to cancer. So I, I love some of the analogies that Brad helped us to kind of walk us through and helped us to understand what is epigenetics. I mean, it's complicated, right? Because one of the things he starts off telling us is that in order for anything to work right in a cell, you've got a big problem because you have feet of genetic information that has to be jammed in to a cell that's you know smaller than the tip of a pen. And then once you've got that jamming in there done, it's got to be in a really organized way, right? Because you have genetic information that needs to be accessible in each cell to help a liver cell do what a liver cell should do, but not what a muscle cell should do and help a muscle cell be a muscle cell, but not be a, you know, an immune cell. So it's complicated to say the least. So we can see the potential for things to go awry in cancer, right? And in that organization and turning on and off of genes for there to be problems that allow cancer to arise. And so I'm still kind of stuck in my head about thinking about all these knots and, um, you know, just kind of like knots in a string that he was able to describe to us in, in a really beautiful way. So I think you'll love listening to Brad explain to us what epigenetics or epigenomics is and why it's so important in cancer and some incredible research that they've done to bring this insight all the way to clinical trial. So let's take a listen. All right. Good morning, Brad. Good morning. We are delighted to have an opportunity for you to share with us and our audience some of the really fantastic science that you've been up to. All right. I'm going to start with a big one. You focus on epigenomics. <laughs> so we're going to have to spend a minute trying to understand what is epigenomics. Can you share that with our audience? And then we'll slowly move down a path towards getting to cancer. But why Why would we care about epigenomics and why would you have spent you know, most of your career focused in this area? Sure. I thought I'd start by sharing two fun facts. So the first fun fact is that uh, you inherit at birth one set of genes, one genome and one set of about 20,000 genes. 
And it's important to remember that every cell in your body has the exact same set of genes, the same DNA. Yet, as you know, the cells are markedly different from one another. You have uh, neuron cells, you have blood cells, you have muscle cells that can contract. So, so how can this, you know, this same you know, identical genome give rise to so many different cell types? Well, the answer is that those 20,000 genes, they're not all on in every cell type. The answer is there's, a, there's another layer of regulation called epigenomic regulation or sometimes epigenetic regulation that turns these genes on and off in just the right uh, patterns. So, for example, in muscle cells, you'll turn on genes that make protein to contract muscle or in, uh, in, you know, bl in, in blood, you'll turn on uh, the hemoglobin gene so you can transport oxygen uh, or in, you know, in, the, in neurons, you will turn on genes for neurotransmitters. So this is uh, sort of the beauty, uh, the complexity of, of metazoans, which are sort of multicellular complex organisms uh, like we are. And, and epigenomics is absolutely central to all that. The second fun fact that I wanted to share is that your genome, your, the DNA, uh, the, the, the blueprint you know, that you've inherited is actually about, if you stretch that sequence end to end, it's about six feet in length, so two meters. Yet, um, as I told you, there's a copy of that genome in every single cell in your body, and in fact, in the nucleus of the cells, and that nucleus is uh, smaller than the sharp end of a pin. So you got to get your head around that. How do you take a six-foot-long string of, uh, of DNA bases and, and, and get it to fit inside of a, inside of a, a nucleus that's about six microns? Um, so again, this is, this is that higher-order layer of regulation. What we've learned is that the, the, that string of DNA is wrapped around spools, sort of like you would uh, you, you'd keep your your thread for your sewing thread, um, and there are many many spools, and they're very precisely organized in each nucleus, um, and there's there's a structure to it, and 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 this actually ties into what what I started out the podcast by telling you about, and and that is that actually each cell type spools up the DNA in a little bit of a different way. So it allows, again, the right genes to be accessible and, and, and switched on. So that's what I think of as epigenomics. It's sort of, it's two things. It's, you know, how, how a single genome can give rise to so many different cell types and how you can, you know, uh, package, organize, and, and, and maintain this precious genome that you have um, in these, t these t the tiny, tiny cells and, in fact, the tiny, tiny nuclei of the cells. That is fascinating, and that's actually really hard to wrap your mind around. I mean, that's a lot of genetic material crammed into a really small space, and I loved your analogy. I'm sitting here thinking of like a bunch of, of, of folks sitting around winding thread, and it's just, it's fascinating, and also a, a huge challenge for cells to make sure that your muscle cells are performing as muscle cells should perform and your cardiovascular system is performing as, as it should perform with all the, the different cell types and, and on and on and on. So 
it's challenging and and kind of mind-boggling but we'll just level set that it works it works right most of the time except it doesn't sometimes can you help draw a link between how epigenomics or epigenetics if, if it's so critical in normal cells and seems fraught with the potential for things not to go well, can you make the link for us to maybe how these processes would be important in cancer? Yeah, I mean, the, the, cancer has classically been thought of as a genetic disease, wherein you get mutations to the DNA, and these mutations can turn on cancer-causing genes, or the muta- and different kinds of mutations can, can turn off these uh, suppressive or cancer suppressive uh, genes uh, causing cancer that way, but as we just talked about, um, there are it can be def- there you know the, as we just talked about uh, these epigenomic controls are critical for turning genes on and off as well. So this might lead you to suspect, gee, uh, are there cases where you didn't actually mutate a gene, but you apparently regulated it, you accidentally turned it on uh, epigenetically or epigenomically, or you uh, inappropriately silenced it. And so what, what, the, what we're learning in, in the field of, of cancer epigenetics, I would call it, is beginning to learn, is that there indeed there are um, very frequently cases where uh, the sequence of a gene doesn't change. It's not genetic, yet its function changes radically in a way that drives tumor genesis, that drives cancer. Goodness. Okay. So we've added another layer of complexity, and that is, I guess, miss or dysregulation of epigenetics, which can lead to aberrant gene expression and some of the processes that we associate with cancer cells, like being able to divide all the time with no limitations or being able maybe to move to distant sites, which we would call metastasis. So it's a lot. So most scientists choose one area to kind of drill down in and focus. Um, A lot of your research has been in stem cells. Could you maybe just share with us a little bit about what is a stem cell and then kind of why are they important? Why do we care about them? And then we can maybe link them back into epigenetics. Sure. Um, you know, stem cells are the cells in your body that have the capacity to, to self-renew or make more of themselves. They replicate and make more of themselves, but they also have the capacity to differentiate, and that is they can turn into more specialized cells. So you might have brain stem cells that can turn into neurons or the glia in your brain that sort of support the, the uh, neurons. You have stem cells in your blood. Perhaps the most famous ones are the blood stem cells that slowly self-renew over the course of your lifetime, but also spin off uh, some cells that then differentiate to form all the different kinds of blood cells in your body. If you think about it, this, this, this goes back to the, the epigenetics. I mean, this is, this is as epigenetic as you get because how do these stem cells self-renew, and then how do they switch and start turning into these other cell types? They do it by altering the regulation of the genes. And so this is sort of at the heart of stem cell biology, the gene controls uh, and, and, and epigenetics. So that's pretty cool. So we started 
our conversation by you sharing with us that it's pretty essential that a cell know what it's supposed to do and when it's supposed to do it. And a lot of that regulation comes from turning on and off genes so that things happen when they should. And then you shared with us there's a particular category of cell called a stem cell. It's actually kind of the the mom cell for all the other cells in that lineage. And it's going to be really critical for that cell that when it divides to give rise to the correct cell type, it will be then its daughter cells and progeny to give rise to all these systems. So then can you tie stem cells and epigenetics to cancer? Absolutely. I, I, I do that in two ways. The first is to think about you know, what if something goes wrong in a stem cell and it just keeps making more of itself, but it can't differentiate? That would be an expansion. It can ultimately be a malignant clonal expansion and give rise to a tumor. So that's one example. Um, and in fact, all, all, you know, various blood cancers are due to blood stem cells that lose the ability to differentiate uh, and gradually become more proliferative. They, they, they divide and divide and divide and, and expand to cause a cancer. And, uh, you know, various other cancers fit that model to, to, to different uh, degrees. But, you know, if you, the second answer to the question is if you think about a tumor, it's, it's a cell that it's, it's driven by a cell that self-renews and keeps dividing and dividing and dividing. Um, so in that way, it's kind of like a stem cell, except it's a stem cell that's lost its way and is dividing in, in sort of an uncontrolled uh, fashion. And, you know, maybe differentiating a little bit or may not be differentiating, uh, but, you know, but because it's expanding so much mass of cell creating tumor, uh, it's a problem. Yeah, a significant problem. <laughs> so you mentioned blood cells, and many of us are familiar with different types of blood cells and the probably more in line with our audience, the types of cancers that are, come from blood cells, like different leukemias and different lymphomas. So you've done some really incredible work in leukemia. Could you talk to us a little bit about why it's so important to you to understand, based on everything you've just shared with us about the regulation of cells, through epigenetic processes. Can you talk to us about how and why leukemia cells differ from each other and from normal cells? Yeah, I just, I guess I would want to stress if you, you know, we, we think about a tumor, we're not just thinking about those malignant cancer cells that are dividing. In fact, a tumor consists of uh, cancer cells, but many other cells as well. It's an ecosystem with those those malignant tumor cells with uh, different kinds of fibroblasts and other normal cells that are in the the in the milieu. Um, in the case of you know AML, it's sitting in the bone marrow, so there can be other bone marrow cells. There's also immune cells, some of which are are normal immune cells uh, present. You know this has become particularly. Uh, relevant and important given real uh, game changer discoveries and therapeutics that, you know, a lot of the most exciting therapies now are, are stimulating the immune system. And it goes, all goes back to the fact that, that a tumor is really actually not a monotonous 
collection of cells, but rather it's a complex ecosystem containing, you know, different, you know, cancer cells that may be differentiating and thus may look, um, some of them may look different than others. They may be a heterogeneous mixture, um, as well as, you know, all these other, you know, many other normal cell types that are, that are also in the ecosystem. So, um, my my labs are we have kind of a long history. We have a real interest in developing technologies, sort of using um, engineering tools, genomic tools, computer science tools, to to learn something uh, important about biology or in this case cancer. So one of the tools that we've been you know, working with colleagues at MGH, at MIT, and at the Broad Institute um, on was a, a tool for, uh, that allowed us to study which genes are on and which genes are off in leukemia. But the special thing about this tool is it allowed us to do it in uh, individual cells, single, single cells from the, the leukemia aspirates or from the, from the bone marrow of a, of a leukemia patient. We could look at thousands of cells in this way, um, and you know, having this information is a really powerful view. Ha having this kind of uh, view of the complexity uh, of a leukemia um, can be really informative uh, at a biology level. Um, it, it taught us about the different. That it taught us about uh, the leukemia stem cells, the one that the ones that self-renew and fuel the tumors. It showed us uh, that they were complemented by these differentiating cells that were sort of so some of those leukemia stem cells were were differentiating a bit, uh, and that turned out to be important too because uh, it looks like some of the uh, leukemia cells that differentiate actually turn into to, to other kinds of cells that suppress the immune response. It also showed us that there were T cells in the tumors and, and you know, many other populations. And I, I think given where therapeutics is going, there's much more recognition that this entire ecosystem um, of the tumor, all the heterogeneity, is uh, going to be incredibly important for understanding tumors, for coming up with, with prognosis and stratifying patients who have, you know, maybe different variants of the cancer, and ultimately for for therapeutic strategies. Uh, for example, immune therapies, those therapies that stimulate your immune system to go attack the tumor. So I, I'm just picturing you guys in the lab. You've talked to our audience about how tiny all of these things are, right? We have six feet of DNA jammed in a cell, and, and now you have a tool that incredibly allows you to understand the genes that are on and off in individual leukemia cells from patients. And what you have discovered is that there is an enormous amount of what sounds like variety, would you call it that, in within not only the tumor cell population of the genes of what's going on and which cells are doing what in the cancer, but also there are a lot of other cells around as well that are contributing to how this tumor grows. So how, how do you use this tool in therapy? What's the translation. Can you help us understand that? Great question. I, I think there's actually a fairly simple, straightforward answer. I, you know, time will tell whether it, you know, bears out, but um, the leukemia cells 
express different checkpoint molecules on their surface that, you know, at least have the appearance that they may be suppressing the immune systems in very specific ways. So this gives rise to the question, can you come up with ways to block those molecules or block the immunosuppressive properties of the leukemia cells um, and uh, maybe stimulate an immune attack? Nice. So uh, remind us what a checkpoint is that might be on an immune cell. Is that, what is that? Is that some? Is that some? That's something on the surface of the leukemia cell that's kind of talking to or communicating with the immune system. But what's it saying? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah. What's that conversation? Well, I mean, the way tumors use them is to trick the immune system to tell the immune system, "I'm okay. Leave me be. <laughs> Let me grow." And uh, it's it's a it's a it's a helps tumors uh, evade the immune system. Uh, it's a very bad thing for the patient, though. Right. So by understanding that leukemia cells within a tumor may have signals on their surface that are telling the immune system, this is no big deal, you can then potentially target a therapy in a specific patient towards those yeah. cells in that tumor. Yes, that's one example. Uh, another example is that uh, we now have very precise views of the, the, which genes are on and off in the leukemia stem cells, but we also have similarly precise views of normal stem cells. And of course, you want a therapy that's going to have uh, that's going to target the leukemia stem cells, but the, not the normal stem cells. And uh, knowing what those uh, those those programs, the the genes that drive these respective types of stem cells, i.e. the cancer one and the normal one, um, can help us uh, strategize about therapies that would be specific to the cancerous stem cell. Oh, nice. You must be so excited. I mean, every day you must just get to the lab and be like, holy moly, what will happen today? I think it would be a thrilling time to be doing what you're doing. Can you tell us more? Like, what's that like? Is it overwhelming? I would say that's pretty accurate. You know, I, I I come into work and I'm terribly excited to go talk to the well, we have physician scientists in the lab. We have graduate students in the lab. Um, we have computational biologists in the lab. And I tell you, I am so excited to go talk to each one of them when I come into the lab. Um, you also mentioned overwhelming. Sometimes at the end of the day, when I realize how much more <laughs> I need to take care of to, to make sure that this operation moves forward, um, that can be a little overwhelming, but uh, but I'm really motivated because I I, I, I can see um, that this sort of fundamental science that we've been working on for the past 15 years um, is now on the cusp of of having impact, which is of course my goal and and and, and dream. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit more about that. I think it's hard for individuals who aren't scientists or clinicians to understand that pathway from really basic discovery science all the way to a drug that they're going to pick up at the pharmacy. Can you help us understand kind of where we are in that pathway and how for in your specific area? So I guess we could we could talk about sure. specifically uh, leukemia or, or acute myeloid leukemia, but just in general, where do you where do you see in your wildest dreams? Where could you well, be let me, in five years? Let me, I, I'd like to give you very specific examples of where we've come. I mean, you know, we started 15 years ago studying how 
chromosomes, you know, how the genome folds up and is regulated in yeast, and then we went to human cells and stem cells and to cancer. I want to share one of one of sort of the most exciting uh, discoveries that I think touches on your question then, and that is we have identified very specific examples where a piece of genome folds up improperly in a cancer and turns on an oncogene. Of course, oncogenes are these the, the classic cancer-causing genes. Um, what we found, and we found this in a type of brain tumor, and we've also found this in a type of gastrointestinal tumor. They're, they're very different tumors, though they share uh, a property in that, that we know that their epigenome is particularly deranged. Um, it's it's the, the the way the methylation sometimes we think about the uh, the epigenome being regulated by methylation methyl groups being attached to the DNA and we know that this type of brain tumor and this type of uh, gastrointestinal tumor both have a derangement of the methylation. But what we learned on top of that is that they both have another thing in common and that is in both cases the methylation causes their genome to misfold in a particular way. And in both cases, when that happens, this switches on an oncogene. So the key thing is we often think about oncogenes being mutated to turn them on, activated on a genetic basis. But in these cases, the oncogenes are genetically normal. They're wild type. What has happened is the, the part of the genome where the oncogene is sitting has refolded in a totally aberrant way, um, but in a way that basically takes all, it switches on those oncogenes. Uh, they make lots of RNA and lots of protein, and this drives those tumors. Um, the, the, the importance of this is, is, is twofold, right? So now, so now we can think about uh, therapeutic strategies. Uh, one kind of therapeutic strategy you might say is, well, can you fix that folding problem? Is, you know, can you use a drug that changes the methylation or changes the folding? And in fact, we are uh, starting clinical trials and studies in some of these brain tumors to ask exactly that question. If we, uh, there are existing drugs that modulate the methylation, and if, can we use some of those, uh, those drugs to uh, fix that fold so the oncogene switches off? The second outcome is that in, you know, in, in, in those cases, uh, we know the identity of the oncogenes that get turned on, and we know that the program is getting turned on. Now, you wouldn't have known that by just sequencing and looking at the genetics because there's no genetic defect. So the conventional clinical test, even the f very most cutting-edge tests that do genome sequencing for a tumor, would miss this. But what we but what we found nonetheless is that these oncogenes are being turned on. So the question then becomes: Can you use uh, targeted therapies against these oncogenes? One is PDGFRA, and there's very potent uh, targeted therapies against them. And another is um, FGFR. These are just different kinds of oncogenes. But there's very active, uh, very active efforts in pharma to to target these. Um, knowing that the misfolded genome or the aberrant epigenetics has turned on these specific oncogenic pathways now proposes a strategy to target them in this type of tumor and, and very specifically in those patients that we know have 
uh, uh, that we know that their tumor is driven by misfolding of the genome in, in, in these regions. That is crazy. I mean, it's really crazy to think about. If you go back to your original illustration, if you're thinking about someone just winding string around a spool, that you started in yeast and you were able to move from yeast to cell lines to tumor cells to two incredibly different tumors, a brain tumor and a gastrointestinal tumor, and discover that it was the string that was all wadded up. There wasn't anything wrong with it. The genetic sequence was right, but there was a wad there, and that wad was causing some tumorigenic processes that now you can specifically target. And you could think about someone very specifically going along and bringing in someone to kind of unwind that specific wad, that specific tangle that we wouldn't have even known was there with other other mechanisms. So that's incredible. I, I have just a couple more questions, and then we'll let you get back to all this fantastic work. Um, I, you've been funded by the ACS. It's been a, a, a small contributor to a, a really wonderful mechanism that, that, and lab that you've been running. But I'd love to know if there's a way that ACS has impacted, ACS funding rather, has impacted your research. Yeah, I would say ACS was... Uh significant contributor to my research in a in a particular way um the you know, a lot of the funding that we get from the NIH it's it's critical to our program but it's often pretty directed uh we have to have an idea and we have to write a grant and we you get the grant and we we pursue that that per project um the ACS funding which has just been I've been very uh, fortunate to receive has been pretty flexible funding and so when we get an idea, rather than then applying for a grant, um, in our case, we can um, quickly deploy some of that funding and uh, and explore it. You know, probably most of the time the idea turns out to be a terrible one, but sometimes, you know, it changes the direction of things. So so I wouldn't undervalue um, how, how significant that can be. That's wonderful. We are really banking on that one percent, right? I mean, that's all we need. Yeah to be right some of the time, and it, it seems exactly. like you've been right a whole lot. So I just want to close out because um, a lot of our listeners are either cancer patients or they love someone who has been diagnosed with cancer and always interested in, I think it's a really wonderful opportunity from them to hear from uh, some of the absolute thought leaders like you in cancer and in cancer research. So um, is there a message that you'd like to share with those folks who are either patients or care about a patient about where you see um, the field moving and um, what we can expect in coming months and years? Uh, I just would say I have a lot of empathy towards patients and, 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 and their family. I have you know my own family members and dear friends who are struggling with, uh, with cancer today. And I, I guess I would, I would say, you know, there is some hope that the field has, you know, progress in the field has been tremendous over the last uh, maybe decade. And so, you know, everything one reads about a prognosis of a particular tumor type might, might be completely revised or may have been completely revised in the last couple of years. Or if it's not yet, um, we may just be on the cusp of of, of really changing uh, the book of how we treat cancer and the outcomes. So I would sort of, you know, 
keep hope and learn, become educated about, you know, where things are going and, and what treatments are available. And I would, you know, know that there are a lot of scientists like me who are extremely passionate about um, figuring out this problem. And there's a lot of translational clinicians who are extremely passionate about um, taking what we learned and bringing it into the clinic uh, to the patient. And that's why we're here. Well, we're awfully glad you're there. And we are, you know, as I said, we are absolutely grateful for you and your team and all those really wonderful scientists and clinicians that you've trained and have initiated careers of their own. So we'll let you get back to it. But thanks so much, Brad. This has been fascinating. Best of luck. Thank you. It's been terrific.